Welcome to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a Curriculum Development Specialist here at NCBRT. I work in collaboration with subject matter experts around the country to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. Today, we are rebroadcasting our first ever episode with our guests, Tom Davis, Scott Parker, and Sherry Harris, three responders in Washington State at the center of the earliest outbreak of COVID-19 this year. Next week, we'll be checking back in with Scott and Tom and see how the response has been in their areas over the past almost seven months since we last spoke to them. So welcome, everybody. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having us today. Uh, My name is Tom Davis. I'm the chief of police in the city of Linwood, Washington. Linwood is a suburb of uh, Seattle and is a position in the southern part of Snohomish County. I've been a chief there since 2016 and uh, been working with our other regional partners on the COVID-19 pandemic that we're currently dealing with now. Well, my name is Scott Parker and I'm a captain uh, with the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office. I am the patrol division commander responsible for patrol operations. And I am on my 30th year with the Sheriff's Office. Snohomish County had the first documented COVID-19 case in the country. And the entire situation has been evolving very rapidly as pandemic influenza isn't typically a threat that law enforcement feels that we need to deal with. However, the law enforcement community in Snohomish County had to make a real hard pivot to understand the situation and know that the pandemic influenza that we're currently experiencing with COVID-19 does overlap with the law enforcement mission in regards to PPE. We have equipment that officers aren't familiar with, nor are they comfortable with wearing. And we've had to implement policies and protocols that normally we would not have had to implement. Thank you. Good morning, my name is Sherry. I'm the Chief of Police in the uh, Kirkland Police Department. We're located uh, just south of Snohomish County in King County um, and um, just across uh, a lake with a little bridge connecting us to Seattle. have 107 commissioned officers in a jail as well. Um, and the first um, COVID death was reported here. Uh, tell us a little bit about how the response has been so far in your community. Uh, Scott, will you start us off there? Yes, so the response uh, just within the, the, the county where I'm at is, is certainly one of a little uh, disjointedness and confusion because this typically is not a threat that law enforcement deals with. Well, the one thing we need to realize is this does cross over into the law enforcement mission in many ways. But uh, so I'll use the analogy and I think Tom uh, has used this before where we're building the plane as, as we're flying it. We are drafting plans and implementing uh, operational protocols as we move forward. This is fast moving. It changes daily and sometimes hourly. So those plans don't uh, survive first contact with the enemy, if you will. So, uh, but what law enforcement needs to realize is the continuity of operations. 
is really important because as I stated, it does cross over into uh, our mission in regards to public safety, security, and we need to continue providing essential functions and services to our constituents. Well, I would just say that um, I, I would agree with all of that. Uh, it, it, you know, things change on a daily basis. Um, in Kirkland, we opened our emergency operations center on February 29th. Uh, and I have been sitting next to the fire chief on a daily basis ever since. And so for our community um, and for the law enforcement uh, response, we have been working very closely with um, Kirkland Fire Department and their health officer who is connected with King County Public Health as well. So a lot of the changes that we've made here have been based on what um, the response in the fire department is making. Yeah, thank you. I, I would uh, echo both of those comments. I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is that it is first and foremost a, a you know a, a healthcare a crisis and so what's unique, as Scott mentioned, is that we're not uh, able to go to a playbook, so to speak, and be able to pull out the section that applies here. Uh, it is changing hourly. Um, it's created relationships and a need for relationships that, that probably weren't as critical six, seven months ago. The other thing is, I think we started almost observing this occur in other countries, and it was more uh, of an interest for us and wondering if even it was going to land in the United States. Um, and then very quickly, we found ourselves in Washington State in particular at the epicenter of the first outbreak, as Sherry mentioned, uh, in, in her city. So we are very much working on a daily basis. It is changing daily. It is increasing rapidly. And I would submit that any, any city in the country right now, any region that is largely watching what's happening on the coast, prepare very quickly. And I think that's a, a large part of uh, what we're talking about here today. Thank you. Um. So Scott, can you tell us a little bit about what systems you've had in place locally that um, have aided in the early COVID-19 response and planning? I know y'all said that they're, you're sort of flying the plane um, that's being built, but um, if there were any, can you shed some light on that? The, the primary processes and systems we had in place in Snohomish County. And Tom just touched on it. And it's extremely relevant in this particular incident. And those are the relationships that we've built and that we continue to build. Uh, in Snohomish County, the police chiefs and the sheriff have a, a monthly meeting or breakfast, if you will. So there's lots of communication uh, among the department heads all the different agencies or law enforcement agencies in Snohomish County have a great relationship with the fire service and our department of emergency management. And uh, even those policymakers that uh, are a step or a level above us. So I would say what we had in place that is really assisting us as we move forward in this pandemic is the relationships that we had prior to the pandemic. And one of the things we say in an emergency, uh, when the emergency hits, that's not the time that you walk over and shake the hand of your emergency manager or your fire captain and introduce yourself. It, it really needs to occur prior to an incident occurring. I'll add to that a little bit. Uh, Scott mentioned, so the police chiefs and sheriff in Snohomish County 
we do meet on a monthly basis. Have been doing that for for years and years, quite frankly. And so those relationships are are very well developed. What we've done just uh, uh, recently during the outbreak is uh, the chiefs and sheriff. Uh, we now have a weekly conference call, and so we are talking about these things uh, that are occurring every day. Normal monthly meetings that we used to have these uh, regular attended meetings that um, would occur have now all just as a result of this been increased. So we're meeting much more frequently now talking about the, the challenges in each of our departments, watching staffing in law enforcement, first responder community very closely, not only from our own agency perspective, but watching that from a regional perspective as well, developing plans now so that if a agency goes down, if you will, has a large quarantine population or unable to respond, we're able to do that with the other resources. So this is very much not an isolated department by department. This is really a, a regional issue right now that we all need to be working on together. Uh, no, I would agree that's very similar to what's happening here in Kirkland, that not only are we talking on a weekly basis um, and sharing information and new protocols as they change. Um, and for just me here in Kirkland, it's it's been very interesting that I'm now uh, also listening in on phone calls with the fire chiefs and the EMS um, uh, officers as well. Um, so shifting our focus a little bit onto the um, first responder management side. So just in general, how are first responders being prepared for this? Um, Sherry, would you start us off there? Well, we have instituted some protocols of doing some daily communication again because things have changed on a daily and hourly basis. Um, some of the personal protective equipment uh, is not necessarily uh, what police officers would have been carrying on their person um, on a daily basis, but they are now. And so masks and eye protection are, and gowns are um, something that they have on their person every day. And so trying to prepare them is also in debriefing things that happened today or yesterday that didn't go well and sharing that have been done better. Um, and also, again, uh, for us here, getting input from um, the fireside and Lincoln County Public Health on uh, what's an exposure and what's not an exposure. Mm -hmm. Okay, Scott, uh, what do you have to add there? I think stated <clears throat> a little differently, I would say how their first, how the first responders are being prepared is through education. Some of those things that Sherry just mentioned and support, we have to provide support for the first responders. They're also watching the news events in the evening. They're also getting misinformation. They're also receiving or making up, creating some information based on the different sources that uh, they're listening to. So that educational piece is vital to the first responders. And that educational piece comes from my previous statement, those relationships that we're building. We've got to get relevant, information, accurate information from our public health officials that are on the ground with us, the fire service, emergency management, law enforcement, and then we need to implement a uh, strong foundation of risk-based decision-making based on all that relevant and accurate information. And one thing I left out is legal advice. Uh, the legal team needs to be involved in this, but really it's, it's about education, educating our, uh, our staff, 
that are out there every day on the front lines and supporting them through a number of different uh, uh, policies, procedures, and protocols that we're putting in place. Tom, do you have anything to add? Much of what we're doing now with respect to social distancing and disengaging is really uh, counterintuitive to our mission in law enforcement. So that communication piece is critical, uh, asking officers to you know, be vigilant out there, but also at the same time, uh, use a lot of discretion and contacts. We're doing some specific to first responders, doing a lot of doorway triage now, things uh, circumstances where we would, you know, close the distance and, and make contact quickly. We're now obviously uh, asking questions from a distance of people before we contact them, making a de determination of uh, the environment much more from just a uh, officer safety standpoint from a physical nature, but also now from a health health perspective as well. Uh, and our dispatch is doing a good job. Another really important component to this communication with first responders, keeping them safe is the level of questioning that our dispatchers do uh, now on all 911 calls to make a health assessment prior to law enforcement or fire responding. So uh, when we think of protecting first responders, it, it is not only the PPE that we've been talking about, but it is the education, the information and communication as well to try to reduce the fear that the first responders have out there while they're engaging with the community. I think that's a real critical piece of this that may not be real obvious. If I could add one thing to what Tom said, I think is, is important is there's the PPE and we've all touched on it. Sherry touched on it that the officers now deploy with PPE that uh, on their person uh, in, during this uh, environment. PPE is tangible. It's those items that the officers can touch and hold and have. But in addition to PPE, Tom touched on it a little bit. It's about those protocols that we're putting in place. So PPE is important. It's the equipment to help keep officers safe, but it's also the protocols, the doorway triage as Tom touched on. And, but the why is really important. Why do you wanna do that doorway triage? And it goes back to the educational component because if you're within six feet, there's airborne droplets that may get into your respiratory system, et cetera. But also restricting or limiting what our officers are doing and it is counterintuitive to the law enforcement mission because we go out there proactively and seek out criminal activity but why are we not taking people to jail right now if we have a stable jail population one day and then two days and then three days that's a really good thing and the longer we can have that stable population is is really fantastic but every time we introduce an anomaly into that jail a new suspect a new uh uh, inmate, if you will, that we're bringing off the street, it potentially affects the corrections officers, potentially impacts the nursing staff, and that's where your continuity of operations need to come in because you need to continue your essential functions and providing services to your constituents. So basically what I'm trying to say is along with PPE, you could put a slash right next to the E and add another P for protocols right behind it. So you've got the tangible items, but now you're engaging your, your mind as well. I think to add to that a little bit as well, uh, with respect to the jail in particular, uh, we have to keep in mind, even on the street, uh, one, one exposure, one 
exposure uh, that requires a uh, quarantine and then potentially isolation if it's a positive uh, test really equals four, five, or six staff. And so uh, for quarantine purposes. And so we have to be careful about our management of our resources because uh, one exposure can create a significant staffing crisis for us. And nowhere is that more particular than in the jail when we have these closed confined areas as well. So staffing management is also a really critical piece of making sure that we have enough first responders to be able to uh, work on the street and work with our communities as well. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, so I know we touched on some protocols and things like that. Um, Sherry, have there any, been any sort of innovative new protocols that uh, y'all have been instituting um, in your department? I would say, aside from uh, what have been talked about here, we, we did start very proactively um, based on having officers um, that have been exposed and that were in quarantine um, to think about other areas of the department where we could reduce exposure. So our records unit has been working from home very early on. Um, our detectives are rotating um, on a weekly basis so that they're not all together at the same time. So we could continue that continuity of operations. Um, one other thing that has really um, been very helpful in our city is that for both police and fire, if someone is sick, we're asking them not to come to work. And to some degree, we're telling them that you can't be at work and uh, putting them out actually on administrative leave. So they're not having to take their own vacation or sick leave or you know, sick leave to be here. Um, new, new officers, uh, this is, they don't have leave banks to take. Uh, and they're also very gung-ho. They would come to work sick. So that is something that's been uh, very well received as well as, as far as feeling, officers feeling like they're being taken care of, um, that we're not letting people who are sick work beside them, and they're not having to take their own leave banks when we're sending them home. We're doing some monitoring. I'm sure that's probably pretty consistent uh, throughout law enforcement and fire service today where you're taking your temperature when you do get to work um, and self-monitoring. And then if you don't feel well during the day, um, people are going home. That's great. Um, so what is the protocol for putting an officer in isolation? I know you touched on that a little bit, Sherry. Um, so say you know, you have a number of uh, officers who are feeling sick. What's the protocol for putting them on isolation? And what's the plan for getting these officers back to work? Um, let's see. I have this one. Tom, can you start with me? Uh, sure, I'll be happy to start. Uh, and we have uh, had that experience at Linwood. Um, I'll share that an officer uh, was feeling ill uh, and, and, and this is fairly typical, I think, with young, healthy employees, uh, quickly came back to work, worked a few days, and then uh, fell ill again and went out. We then, um, through working with him, he was able to, to test and he did test positive. One of the advantages we have in Snohomish County, and I would encourage other regions to consider this that are maybe uh, uh, waiting for the pandemic to arrive, if you will, and that is to develop a relationship with your uh, medical director, your health director, uh, lead health director in your community. 
So we uh, engage very frequently with our health director in Snohomish County, who gives us guidelines for uh, being symptomatic, asymptomatic, what a definition of an exposure is. We're able then to go back and find a period of time in which that employee may have been symptomatic. Uh, and then we do a series of questioning with officers to determine if any of them had met the criteria, which in our case, and I believe it's standard, Scott alluded to this, is um, less than six feet away from a person, longer than 10 minutes of time with no PPE. And if we felt anyone met that specific criteria, we then, as Sherry indicated, placed them on paid administrative leave, even though they're asymptomatic, showing no signs, and then they engage in that quarantine period. What we're also finding is that by the time an employee, in an example like I just gave, tests positive, they're typically seven or so days into that 14-day period themselves. Uh, and so we look back and pick the date in which those officers may have been exposed and start that quarantine period from that date. Um, so you can see where a very simple example of somebody that maybe had a community contact uh, or exposure can create a, a very a quick staffing crisis um, in, a, in a facility. Once those employees pass the 14 days and they're asymptomatic, they're able to return to work immediately. Uh, we do not require in, in my department that they get a test if they're asymptomatic. That is certainly an option for them if they choose to do so. Uh, and then we just monitor for symptoms. Uh, and if any of them are become symptomatic, then we do the same thing again. We look at the calendar date, we work with the doctor, we find out a date in which they potentially could have exposed other individuals. That's an example of what I would call a, 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 a contact that did not occur specifically in the field with a particular individual. A little bit different case, I think, than what Sherry has experienced down in Kirkland, but that's how we're doing community contact, which is defined really as an unknown source when we say community contact, uh, for the source of the, of the uh, infection. Um, and that's worked well so far uh, in Linwood. Um, it can, again, create a staffing crisis very quickly. It can cast, have a cascading effect very quickly. One thing that I would add, I agree with everything Tom just said, and I, I think they've established some great protocols in the city of Linwood for what they're doing. Sherry will certainly have more to add to this uh, particular question. But again, I, I'll go back to that educational piece and creating something like a matrix. If this happens, this is what you do. Because officers or your staff will come frequently and say, and tell you that they've been exposed. But does that meet the exposure criteria? If we placed every staff member in isolation or quarantine that indicated they'd been exposed to COVID-19, we wouldn't have any uniformed officers out on the street. So it's creating that definition of what exposure is, creating a matrix, pushing that out to your staff, educating them on uh, if they have or haven't been exposed. I would also encourage uh, regions to be proactive as well. Um, one thing that is happening uh, in Kirkland and King County, our CPR calls are being reviewed uh, by the King County um, EMS director. Um, medical calls are being reviewed. Um, they're keeping track of who's um, testing positive and coming back in our community and then looking at were police and fire on those calls. And then what kind of PPE was used. So we, we now include that in our police reports. Um, we had 37 deaths at one 
um, adult family home and very quickly created some protocols where we were um, doing death investigations a little bit differently, um, wearing full PPE, only sending in one officer at a time, which is very different for law enforcement. Um, but we're able then to go back and say, um, have a medical expert say that was not an exposure, you're okay. Um, certainly keeping track of anyone who might um, feel ill because there are times when we don't know that they've been, uh, uh, that they do have COVID or that they are symptomatic uh, until later. Some, and a community member that we might have had contact with. Um, so I, I, I would agree that uh, very important to be just proactive and encourage anyone to do that as much time as you. One additional thing I would like to add in this region, we have testing sites that are available for first responders. The public health uh, staff, the nurses, doctors, law enforcement, fire service, and we're receiving those results back in some cases less than 24 hours. Wow. Now, I understand that there's some testing protocols that may change where it's going to be a lot quicker than that, but up until up to this point in time, it's been two, three, four, five days down the road, but we're getting test results back in, uh, in, in a nice time frame that allows us now to make those decisions. Do we still place this officer in uh, isolation, send him home until he's asymptomatic as uh, Tom indicated, or do we bring that person back to work? And that's a fairly new uh, evolution here in our region too, because even a week and a half ago, it was still taking four to four to six days to get a test result back. So that's an example of how things are changing frequently uh, on, a, on a weekly, if not daily basis in our region. I do think that uh, uh, once test kits become more available and the, the results turn around more quickly, as, as Scott is talking about, I think we'll start to get a better handle on a containment of the outbreak in our region. And that's something that uh, I would encourage other regions to look at as well as preparing all of this ahead of time. One of the advantages I think of, of what, how it's occurred in the US is that you know, we all are watching very quickly uh, the first cases that occurred. Um, immediately reached out to, to Sherry after we heard what happened in Kirkland and it wasn't a matter of a week or two when we started having our own cases. So that's how quickly this spreads. The numbers change daily. And if you have a small number in your region or you're, you're not yet impacted, now is the time and time is of the essence to begin to develop your protocols, your relationships, your testing capability, and educating your officers. Um, and as Sherry alluded to earlier, having them wear PPE early on is not a bad idea. While it may seem unnecessary, uh, it happens incredibly quickly before you know it, you're immersed in it. And just one last thing to be prepared for is the officer that can't go home if they have been exposed. Um, because they have somebody that lives in their home that um, is compromised. Um, so pre preparing for that early, um, and then when they become symptomatic, um, having some place to quarantine officers and firefighters, and then having some place um, that you can put them in isolation as well. Wow. And one of the things we've, we've done here, and it's an excellent, excellent point, is uh, secured relationships with local hotels. So we do have a couple hotels in our region that are available for first responders while they are symptomatic or going through isolation or quarantine if they are, as Sherry indicated, unable to return home because they have an immune compromised spouse or children in the home, something of that nature. So 
Uh, there's so many layers to protecting officers and so many layers to this issue uh, that now's the time to start developing those. But uh, a great point, excellent point. Just uh, one, sorry, I hate to do this, but just one no, thing I'd like to tack on to what Tom just said with the local hotels. When you start looking at places you've got to, or issues and concerns. So Sherry brought up a great point. What do we do with officers that can't go home because there's an immune compromised person living in their home, small children, elderly. Tom then says, we have local hotels that are willing to step up and provide rooms. But if you look at the issues and concerns, do they have, do those facilities have a central HVAC system where the air is circulated from room to room? Some hotels, I believe what Tom is referring to would have, uh, I don't know what it would be called, but an individual heating or HVAC system for each room. So it's not the germs and whatnot isn't being circulated from room to room. So with everything that we've touched on here today so far, there are issues and concerns and you've got to work through all those considerations prior to making uh, decisions that may impact your staff, your constituents, et cetera. I think oftentimes what happens is when we answer one question, it also generates two more questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but these are the good questions to be asking, you know, who knows how long this is going to last, but great. Um, so uh, we've talked a little bit about establishing relationships between departments and between communities. So I wanted to ask, um, what are you doing to maintain resources while also helping other communities in your area at the same time who you need resources um, that you can provide? I think we've been, I'll, I'll start, I, I think we've been fortunate to this point to not have to provide a lot of uh, regional support and we're communicating regionally weekly bi-weekly uh, but at this point uh, I'm not aware of an agency in my region and Sherry's just to the south of me uh, and we share some other resources as well uh, with her agency I'm not aware of any agency yet that has been so depleted that we're deploying officers to those regions to handle calls for service that their agencies are otherwise unable to do. Um, I will say that that is part of a, a one of the plans we have in place to do so. We also have the ability to adjust the calls for service that we respond to going to different levels of call response in our region as well if things become uh, critical. So at this point, while we have those plans in place, I'm unaware of any agency that's really had to call for significant assistance or activating that plan yet at this point. Sherry? Uh, I would agree The you know, the fire service has been hit harder as far as uh, firefighters yeah. going into quarantine, both in Seattle um, and here in Kirkland. Uh, they do a, probably a better job on a daily basis uh, with a more regional approach to their response. Um, and I would say in law enforcement, we make those, we make those plans during emergencies um, to, to provide more uh, support. Uh, so far, it has been manageable, um, but planning for the worst case scenario is very important in, in, these, uh, in this time. I could just add to that, uh, to even 
dive a little deeper into that, let you, uh, Ashley mentioned resources. So let's maybe look at what resources are. Uh, what are we referring to in this particular incident when we uh, talk about resources? And it's really people, facilities, and equipment. So Tom alluded, yes, we're not having to shift people around yet, officers to take calls in other areas. There are some plans in place and protocols if we get to that point. But facilities is another uh, piece of the puzzle in that we closed a lot of facilities. So now you look at what are you legally required to do? We're legally required to do concealed pistol licenses. So where do we do that? How do we continue that function in law enforcement with, in the sheriff's office, we have lots of uh, external facilities outside the courthouse. They're all closed. So now we're pushing everybody into the courthouse for limited hours to continue CPLs. And so you've got to look at what you're legally required to do, what uh, charter and ordinances indicate that you're supposed to do when you start looking at facilities and people and equipment. Uh, in regards to equipment, I just want to touch on that we're documenting what's getting pushed out as far as masks, gowns, um, uh, gel, hand sanitizer, wipes to clean your car and those so sorts of things. But what is your burn rate? What are you going through? So then what do you need to replace that? So Ashley, on your initial question, when you ask resources, there are things that law enforcement leadership needs to look at first define what those resources are and how uh, are you gonna develop protocols and workarounds to, you know, to manage those resources. I hope that made sense. Oh yeah, absolutely, that's great. Um, anybody have anything else to add on that before we move forward? I think the, the PPE is, is important, the burn rate as, uh, as Scott mentioned. I see us sharing. I see us sharing uh, those types of resources more frequently than than, than uh, manpower right now, if you will. Uh, those resources have been scarce. Uh, we've had some shipments of of masks that uh, have not met fit test standards, and so we're also dealing with uh, challenges with the PPE as well that we are receiving. So, uh, the information you're hearing about challenges with PPE acquiring it. Uh, are very, very true. It's very difficult for us to do that in the region. And that will just continue because we're competing with, uh, and respectfully, so healthcare and fire and other first responders in this community who have a, a just as critical, if not more critical need for that equipment than we do. Um, I've been seeing a lot of, um, a lot of things flying around social media about making, making, you know, um, civilians making masks for healthcare workers and things like that. Is that something I've never, haven't seen it at all. Um, with law enforcement, and I, I know that uh, you know these um, these masks do not meet any sort of standards. But is that something that you're considering, like worst case scenario? I think it's well. I, yeah, ahead, we're getting uh, we're getting our community members that want to assist. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's absolutely amazing the community members that are coming forward with items that they have in their home or they want to make certain items. Do we take on some risk and liability by issuing out masks that maybe aren't certified uh, or 
going to stop particulates and whatnot? Possibly, but uh, you could go to the Discovery Channel and find DIY masks, I suppose, and there's a list of material that may stop particulates greater than other products like cotton and then cotton silk blend, et cetera. But right. we, we currently are not using or issuing those masks that are being brought to us and they haven't been brought to the sheriff's office in mass quantity. We have, we do have a few though. Mm -hmm. okay. I think we also are seeing uh, some new, again, as an example of how the information changes, the CDC is coming out and talking about uh, masks uh, being worn if you're uh, even healthy now, which was which was not a recommendation uh, early on when PPE was um, and still is, you know, a scarce resource. Uh, I do think that those have application. Just anecdotally, uh, my belief is those have application for um, healthy people in the community uh, to uh, assist them with some level of uh, prevention. My understanding is a lot of that is worn to keep people from touching their own face if they're, you know, infected or uh, have a virus on their hands or something. So the efficacy of it, I think, is still unknown. Um, certainly not something that, as Scott mentioned, we would be issuing to our staff. Uh, and I also think there's even levels of, of uh, uh, surgical requ requirements uh, for healthcare that are, you know, doing intubations and up close and personal with uh, people that are uh, seriously ill from COVID-19 and other illnesses. So there are also, I think, layers of applicability to those types of things as well. Um, we are, at, uh, it does bring up another point though, and that is we're receiving a, a, a lot of donations and a lot of, uh, you know, goodwill. Um, much of that is stuff that's a challenge for us. At some point we do have to say we, we can't accept those uh, for our use. There may be a better donation to a nonprofit or some other organization. So we're directing people to, to other entities that are trying to be helpful in this space as well in the community. Yeah, great. There's also some CDC recommendations on how you can reuse PPE, which we might not have ever thought of in law enforcement yeah. before. A uh, mask might've been one and done a year ago, maybe even a month ago. Um, and today we're now looking at how uh, we can preserve those masks for additional use, how they can be cleaned based on CDC guidelines. Um, and trying to be a little bit more innovative there, which also takes education to officers that um, this this still will protect them um, and that we are going to do it right as we clean them, but that they don't have to be thrown away just because they came out of um, the packaging. Ashley, if I could go back to your original question, it was how are we maybe helping other uh, communities in, within our region? So. Sherry and Tom both touched on this. Our Department of Emergency Management was stood up in February uh, during this whole thing. They were probably monitoring this prior to February because that's what they do, right? Emergency management. Mm -hmm. So each day in Snohomish County, Department of Emergency Management monitors sick leave for the different agencies within the county. They're monitoring the PPE that is coming in and what is being dispersed. So to, to really look at that emergency management component as far as uh, kind of the spoke of the wheel, or not the spoke, but the, the hub of the wheel, uh, dispersing equipment and managing or at least overseeing 
all the different agencies within a city, county, or region. That's where the, all the information goes in, and then that's where all the information gets pushed back out. That's been helpful. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so we've talked a little bit about uh, absenteeism, um, putting uh, officers on isolation and things like that. So um, how do response decisions change if you reach a percentage of absenteeism for the department average? So what sort of plans in place um, are there if that in that in your region? Uh, let's see. Um, Scott, can you start us off with that? Ashley, that is a great question because absenteeism and having a limited workforce is directly connected to some of those things that we've talked about and we will continue to talk about, and that is resource allocation. However, absenteeism isn't the only reason you would move to different operational phases. Things such as having to provide security or protection over stockpiles of PPE or to an isolating or quarantine facility limits the resources that you have available, as well as certain criminal activities such as food looting or increase in criminal activity uh, directly related to COVID-19 or people staying at home and, let's stay at home orders. Agencies though should have a mechanism in place to track sick leave call outs and absenteeism. The one big difference with COVID-19 and sick leave is we are specifically asking our staff why they are sick and if they have the signs and symptoms of COVID-19. Whereas before, Typically, people call in sick and we don't ask questions. However, during this, in this environment, we are asking why they are sick so we can document and follow up with them uh, after the fact. So with absenteeism, we're really looking at it in two different ways. One, the whole agency, and that is support staff, commission staff, and corrections. The other way that we're looking at it is just within the patrol division itself. We, what we did with the patrol division is we looked at what our average daily sick leave was. And then we developed incremental operational phases. So if we are at 10%, to 19% of our average daily absenteeism related to sick, we will move to uh, operational phase number one, which is gonna be different from for all different agencies, but we're looking at only responding to certain calls for service uh, and not responding to certain calls. We are looking at implementing phone reporting or an increase in online reporting. And those operational phases change with 20% to 29% absenteeism to 30 to 39% absenteeism. I would just say that uh, we work a traditional 10 hour shift with three days off. And so one of the things that we've um, been looking at are our collective bargaining agreement, very strong uh, 
union workforce in Washington State. So one of the things that the contract allows me to do is implement an emergency schedule. Um, I have engaged my union in that conversation early on just because I can implement it. Um, doesn't mean that I don't want their input to ensure um, we continue to maintain morale. And so we have uh, built a 12 hour schedule that we would be able to implement if we need to based on, uh, on officers being out sick. And we've had some exposures where five officers on, on one squad have been sent to quarantine based on a call for, for service uh, with the COVID uh, possible suspect. So um, we've come very close, but we've not had to do that. But I, I would encourage uh, anyone in you know, the country, in the region that has um, to work with a union to start now, um, engage them with the issues that, that they um, are feeling and seeing and hearing um, and not get, not have to work on that at, in the middle of that crisis for staffing. I do. We are uh, fortunate in that regard. We are currently on 12-hour shifts in our patrol division. And one of the things that we look at is how much time is an employee off between shifts? Then there's a greater opportunity that if they become symptomatic, it will be while they're uh, out of the workplace. And it changes the dynamic of the response for us as the employer. And so I think that's a positive thing uh, when you can spread the time out between work and off time. We have a very specific protocol in our department that we've written out part of our continuity of operation plan. Uh, we first look at patrol. Patrol is the most likely that division that's gonna be impacted first uh, because of their engagement level with the public, uh, at work I should say. And so then uh, if patrol staff becomes depleted below a certain percent, then we move detective uh, personnel into patrol. We'll move our special operations division into patrol. We'll move our motorcycle traffic unit into patrol. And so we use them, if you will, in reserve, so to speak. We, uh, most of our detectives are working remotely. We have two on during the day to handle any major crimes. That They're also social distancing within the investigations division office now. Uh, we are keeping command staff out and only having one or two command staff members in. This idea of really limiting the amount of time you're in the workplace and limiting redundancy of staff is a really critical part of that personnel plan right now. Uh, can't be underscored enough, really. Um. So uh, I know we touched on the courts a little bit um, with um, facilities, uh, you know, being less available. So um, with the courts being closed, how have officers been guided to change their approach uh, to arrests during this time? Um, Sherry, do you want to start us off with that? Well, because we also have a jail, um, we we have. Uh, done got moved to a mandatory booking protocol. Um, there are crimes in Washington State that are mandatory arrest, um, and so we are still processing those. I've also, again, worked very built a good relationship with the judge, um, and so we have been talking on a weekly basis as well. Um, there are certain crimes that he also has to have in-person hearings for, and how can we better facilitate that through uh, video arraignment in the court? So we're not actually having to take anyone into um, his facility. Um, so a, a lot of, a lot of also prosecutors 
on uh, making arrests and doing some field release um, and and then talking with the sheriff's office about um, felony serious felony crimes and and what we need to do to get those booked into the King County Jail. I, I would add with uh, Linwood, we also run our own municipal jail as well. And the department I'm responsible for that. And our court, I think just in a technical sense, our court is not closed technically. And so uh, it is open for business with respect to those mandatory arrests, arraignments as Sherry mentioned. Um, we've worked closely with our judge as well in the city of Linwood to ask him uh, to defer sentencing as well. So if they're closing cases and there's a sentence that's attached to that as part of a judgment, uh, the judge is deferring those sentences so people will come back at a later date and serve those times. We're doing what's called uh, TROs, temporary release orders. If there are people that are in custody that perhaps could serve their time at a, at a uh, their sentence at a different time, a more effective and safe time for everyone, then we're asking the judge for release orders and allowing those people to actually be released from custody. Um, not much of that has been controversial in our community, and, and oftentimes, you know, when we talk about crime and criminality, this is controversial. But I think everybody in our community understands uh, what is occurring. We absolutely have mandatory arrests for those crimes in which uh, the law is required. I also allow officers uh, under unique circumstances if they believe somebody really needs to be um, physically arrested because of the circumstances of the call. They just receive supervisory authority to do so, and they're able to book those individuals as well. So we are, you know, we're not closed for business, uh, so to speak, but we are certainly managing that very, very carefully. We have to remember, though, in this environment that what we are doing in many ways is deferring that to the future. And so we will have uh, people with warrants outstanding that have not been arrested on those warrants. We will have people that have deferred sentences waiting to serve that time. And so um, in many ways, uh, there's a significant workload coming our way here once we get out of this environment. I agree with all of it. The one thing I would add is <clears throat> law enforcement needs to understand that everything is connected. So the decisions that we make can't be made in a vacuum. We have to reach out and it's already been touched on and build those relationships and speak with our partners at, uh, at the courts and corrections. Tom touched on it. There's already a backlog before COVID-19 uh, hit our region so if we continue to arrest and refer cases we aren't being good partners necessarily we're adding to the backlog that uh is, is coming our way once this thing starts to subside a little bit so really it's the partnerships and the relationships and decisions can't be made in a vacuum it, they've got to be made collectively absolutely um, okay. Anybody have anything to add to that before we move on? Okay. So um, looking forward, what would you recommend um, or what advice do you have um, to places that haven't been hit necessarily as hard as you have um, by the pandemic uh, so far? What advice would you have? I, I would... I would say, uh, don't be stuck in denial. Don't be, don't be a, don't be a fan on the sideline watching what's happening on the East Coast and the West Coast uh, and in Europe. Um, I think we largely were watching what was happening 
in Asia and Europe and instantly we became immersed in it. So it's not a matter of if, not to sound um, doom and gloom, but it's just a matter of, of when it impacts your community. So yesterday is the time to prepare all of these things if it's not in your community right now. Um, the, the more you can do that ahead of time, the less you're gonna have to do it on the fly in the middle of crisis and high emotion with people in your community and in your own city government, quite frankly. Absolutely. This really gives uh, new meaning to all hazards planning. Law enforcement typically would think of pandemic influenza as a public health issue and not one that we would get so heavily involved with, but all hazards planning. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna return to something that we've all heard of, we've all known and we've all been taught and that's NIMS, the National Incident Management System, right? And it touches on those things that we've already touched on here today, resource management, command and coordination, and then the communications piece. Mm -hmm. So those guidance classes and those guidance documents already exist. And I would just suggest for law enforcement to look at that guidance and pre-plan, as Tom said, understand the situation and develop plans that may minimize the impact to your agency, your city, county, or region. I would agree with all of that. And I would also um, encourage anyone in a community that has um, their first case to consider uh, that it's there. And it, it's not just limited to one. Um, for us uh, in Washington State, and certainly in King County, it started in adult family care centers. Um, the employees that work there often work in multiple different facilities. Um, mm -hmm. And whether that's a speech therapist or that's actually a caregiver. Um, so I would just say that um, once you have one case in your community, um, not only should you be preparing for like it's already there, um, but open the EOC, um, begin ensuring that all of your officers have that PPE on their person and take it very seriously because it, it spreads very quickly. Um, so sort of related to that, um, how do we move decision makers from policy discussion into reality? Um, Tom, do you wanna talk about that? But uh, I hate to sound too academic, but it reminds me a bit of, um, you know, Amanda Ripley's deny, deliberate, and uh, decide, you know, that, that survival arc. And you can apply that to a decision-making arc, really. And that is, um, you have to move from denial. Uh, it's not here, or as Sherry said, it's just one. It's never one, we know that. Um, move from that denial to deliberation. Okay, accept that it's here and then to decisive action. Okay, what do we need to do? Let's do it now. Um, if you're stuck in deliberation and you're not taking action, uh, you're gonna be behind very, very quickly in your community. If I could add that this, moving to re reality, if you're considering COVID-19 and what is the environment that we're experiencing here uh, in the nation, isn't unlike 
other high emotional, dynamic, critical incidents that we respond to in the law enforcement community. One, everybody is watching your peers, your constituents, your policymakers. They are counting on you for that education and support and that response when they call 911 or they ask law enforcement to sit at the table. We can't say that's a public health issue. It really does. Uh, uh, it does. The crosswalk is there. It, uh, it, it crosses into the law enforcement mission. But uh, so our decisions are being criticized by everyone. And so we do need to step up. We do need to understand that it is coming to our community. We need to plan. We need to figure out what our capability gaps are and, and, and move forward. I, re I really don't have uh, anything to add. Uh, I, I agree. You, you have to, let's just accept that it, it, it's here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so going forward um, in the theoretical future, whenever um, we're mostly um, past this crisis, how do you think that um, your experiences will affect um, future protocols? Well, I'll go back to something I just said, and that is all hazards planning and looking at a gap analysis for those different threats and hazards that may come to our community and that is looking at where we're currently at in regards to policies procedures protocols equipment resources as you put it ashley mm -hmm. and then on the other end of the spectrum looking where we want to be based on in some instances it's not even best practices because what we're currently going through is common practices we're, we're not sure the best practices in many instances but then looking at the gap and trying to fill that gap with protocols, policies, procedures, and different things so we are prepared next time. Uh, so really to answer your question is doing a gap analysis for, for all hazards planning. Uh, I think it's important that all levels of the organization understand what an incident action plan is in IAP, what a COOP is, a continuity of operation plan. Um, understand that, uh, as has been mentioned already, that we are part of a larger system in our response to this, that there are many people behind law enforcement working hard. Our human resources department with respect to interacting with labor negotiations and making sure that we have memorandums in place, um, you know, making sure payroll still occurs, making sure that reimbursement tracking occurs. There's, uh, there's a role for everybody in government not just first responders in these kinds of, of crises. And the other thing is, um, I don't think that we need a COVID-19 playbook going forward. Uh, I think what we need, as Scott said, is understanding what an all hazards plan is, because whether it's an earthquake, uh, COVID-19, SARS, uh, terrorist event, the reality is it's about decision-making, understanding that the relationships ahead of time are made ahead of time are the most critical piece that may determine the difference between um, you know, a lot of errors and skin knees and, and, and scars along the way and success. I would just uh, agree wholeheartedly with everything um, they said and that, that your playbook and your planning needs to be done locally. Do not uh, rely or um, believe that your, no, no, 
no offense, Scott, but that your county or that your state or that um, FEMA will be coming in to save you. Um, there isn't that kind of time. You need to be prepared uh, to handle the crisis when it's, when it's here locally and not um, feel like you can just wait for someone else to come and help you. You have to prepare locally. Um, so that's all of my questions, but I'm just wondering um, if anything, you know, popped in your mind during this interview that you also want to share um, before we uh, sign off here, anything else you want to add? Not for me, thank you. Yeah, okay. Thank you to Tom, Scott, and Sherry for being our first guests on the podcast and offering extremely valuable insight into the COVID-19 response so far. If you would like to send feedback or have a topic suggestion, you can email us at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. You won't want to miss our next episode where we'll be talking about workforce issues for law enforcement in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.